Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. And John 3, 5 tells us, Except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the Kingdom of God. And uh, that's a, kind of an important idea that uh, that we could go into in great depth, because a lot of people think, you know, like, what does that mean? You know, all you have to do is accept Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Savior. But what does that mean? Uh, what what does that look like? What actually is taking place when we're doing this accepting? We talk about uh, having to confess uh, Christ uh, and th- then we're saved. But what does it mean to confess Christ? If you're not doing what Christ says, then your actions are not confessing Christ. If you do not have the character of Christ in your relationships with the the people around you and and with the world around you, then you really haven't accepted Christ. You just said you accepted Christ. You may be lying to yourself. You may be lying to others. Or you may be telling the truth. I don't know. But how do we know whether you are? How do you know whether you are? And, of course, James tells us by what you do. What you do is evidence. What you do is that confession. It It is how... You're expressing out loud in the world, in your actions, whether or not you truly b- believe in Christ. Now, in the news, I, I heard just before the, the show started, uh, they were talking about uh, State of the Union address and and um, Ocasio-Cortez uh, statements about socialism and and. President Trump's statements about socialism, that this country will never be a a socialist nation. Uh, The the reality is there's a great deal going on in America that is very socialist, has been for almost a 100 years now. Um, The money system is socialist. If If you look at concepts of socialism, the idea that all the money that you have is actually notes or digital entries that are produced by uh, a network of banks and the Bankers Bank, which is the Federal Reserve, makes your the the monetary system that you have socialist. It's it's controlled by somebody else and controlled by actually it's a great deal of it's controlled by your own imagination. You know, if you go back to the 1800s, if somebody said cash only at a business, that we only accept cash at the business, that did not include notes. Notes were not considered cash. Today we call notes cash. But that's not what it actually meant. So you, if, if notes are not cash and digital entries are certainly not cash, then you already live in a cashless society. The same is if you're if your money system, if your welfare system, if your educational system are all socialist in nature, you may say, I don't want to live in a socialist nation. You already do. It's just a question of degree. And then people going around talking about socialism works. And, and, and you see the debates. I mean, some of you see the debates. Some people just, 
you know, they're out there struggling to make a living. They don't, they don't watch and don't do any investigation. We try to do some of that investigation for you and then bring it to the, the radio broadcast to try to reaffirm certain ideas in your mind and dispel certain ideas that have gotten into your mind that are simply false. And of course, People talk about Sweden. I have a daughter-in-law from Sweden. Uh, they talk about Denmark. I have friends in Denmark who come here and visited numerous times. My son has friends all over the, the world because he used to help with uh, the local school. He never went to school, but I mean, his first classroom experience was teaching in school and helping as an assistant in school uh, because he was home taught. But he met a lot of uh, exchange students from all over the country, and he, he's remained in contact with many of them. And so he has a sort of insight that by those relationships with what's going on in those countries. And, of course, the head of some of these countries have come out and said, we're not a socialist nation. We're a heavily pre-market nation. Uh, Sweden has actually rolled back many of its socialist programs because they were not working. And uh, effectively, there's still complaints about the privatization of their social welfare system, their social security system, at, at least. Uh, but there's always going to be complaints about any kind of system like this. And uh, the squeaky wheels often get the attention because of the fact that they the ones who make a lot of noise. But the reality is that's what the kingdom of God really was all about, was a different kind of social welfare system that did not depend upon men who called themselves benefactors, but exercised authority one over the other. I I did a lot of research uh, in the last few days, early in the morning, late at night, on some of the ideas of what was going on in Rome, what was going on in Judea. I found uh, new information about a number of uh, different things. It's not really new information. It's, it's new for me to put down. There was uh, there was an individual who did a doctorate paper for the University of Glasgow, and uh, it was on the stewardship and almsgiving. And he went into a great deal of detail, quoting sources that uh, are not commonly available to the average guy. And some of these sources are actually written in other languages, so you wouldn't even you wouldn't even have access to them uh, unless you knew those multiple languages. I don't think they've been translated, although he has translated some of the sources. But he went into something we've talked about before, is this uh, idea of, uh, you know, uh, patron-client relationship of people in Rome, which stems way back even before Romulus, where, and and it's a little bit like uh, some forms of feudalism, where somebody who was very wealthy and had accumulated a great deal of land and and built buildings and his father had built things before and you know so they were they were very uh efficient and fruitful in what they were producing and a lot of people wanted to work for them a lot of people who could not organize such uh, grand uh ways in which to provide for community on their own, simply they didn't have the knowledge, they didn't have the willingness to put in the time and the energy and the effort, but they saw, I'm better off if I work for this guy than if I just go out on my own and try to make ends meet on my own. Because this guy's got a lot of people 
he's good with people. People like to work for him. I've seen that in one of my sons. He's, he's really good at uh, taking over a crew and getting the crew to work together. And uh, it takes a certain amount of, you know, people skills and things like that. But because of that, his his crews are more efficient, get more things done than other people who are often put in these positions of uh, being supervisors or heads of uh, industry. And they're really not very good at organizing people. There's just a talent they don't have. And you know, there's a thing called the Peter Principle where a person keeps getting promotions because they do really good in a particular position. They get a promotion and then they do really good in that and they get another promotion. But when they get these promotions, the nature of their job changes and eventually they're promoted into a position that they're not very good at. You know, like being uh, a crew leader requires certain kinds of skills. To be a machine operator requires certain kinds of skills. And you may be the best machine operator on your crew. And so they say, well, he's really good at that. Let's promote him. Let's make him the head of the crew. Well, he may be very bad at being the head of a crew because it's not, you know, uh, organizing men is not the same as operating a machine. Operating a machine, you know, I've done both. Uh, I, you know, I, I was actually the low man on a totem pole working for a company back in the Midwest, uh, back when I first got out of uh, school studying to be a uh, uh, forester, University of Minnesota. And uh, I got a job with private industry. And I started out as the low man on the totem pole doing the hardest and the gruntiest work. And then as we, the business was in transition, it was moving to another location. So I did all kinds of things. When we got to the new location, I was made operator and chief scaler in that business. And uh, as operator of machine, which was part of my job, I had to run hundreds of uh, hydraulic motors backwards, forwards, this direction, that direction, uh, live decks, uh, and had them all operating with levers in front of me at a rapid, rapid pace. Well, I actually was pretty good at that machine. I, I meet quota every single day, which got everybody bonuses. Everybody liked that. But I wasn't really in charge of a lot of men. I was working the machinery. I was scaling timber. And then I got another promotion where I was in charge of men. And I did pretty good in that. But you could be promoted to a place where you're not very good at that. And, you know, like my skills in managing men and and employees doesn't really work well in the ministry. Because in those positions, I could exercise authority. I could fire you <laughs> if you if you didn't know how to do what the job required, and uh, you know, I actually never had to fire people, but I had a few cases where I somebody said they didn't want to do something or they weren't doing something they needed to do, and I said, "Well, why don't you get your time card and I'll sign you out?" And they thought, "Are you firing me?" I says, "No, I thought you just quit. You just said you didn't want to do the job." <laughs> I didn't say anything about being fired. You said you didn't want to do the job. This is the job. I, I thought you were quitting. And, no, no, no. And so he stayed on anyway. So I didn't actually have to fire him. 
But uh, in the kingdom of God, I don't have that kind of power. I can't fire you. I can't kick you out. Uh, I can't, you know, uh, excommunicate you <laughs> from the kingdom of God. It's not that kind of operation. We we don't work that way. Except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Paul talks in several places about people who can't enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus uh, talks about how difficult it is to enter into the kingdom of God. So it's not just saying, I accept Jesus. Uh, you you have to uh, do a number of things, and I, I've written about that. But if you don't understand the context context of the time in which Jesus Christ is saying these things, and Peter is saying these things, and Paul is saying these things, you may not understand what they're really talking about. If you read everything from kind of a mall mentality, a present day modern view of Christianity mentality, because the modern Christian church is not doing what the first century church was doing. And James tells us that we know them by their fruits, by what they're doing. Jesus is saying, I'm going to take the kingdom away from these guys and I'm going to give it to another group that will bear fruit. Is your Christian community bearing fruit? And what does that fruit look like? What what was the early church doing? And are you doing it? What did Jesus command his disciples? His, you know, he's training up these guys to be the ministers of the church. He's going to appoint them to a kingdom that he's told the Pharisees he was going to take away. That's the kingdom of God. He's going to take it away from you and appoint it to another group who will bear fruit. So, are you that other group? Are you the group that's going to bear fruit? Are you doing what Christ said? I mean, you say you believe in Christ, but Christ says, it's not those who say, but those who do. Do what? Do with the will of the Father. So, what is the will of the Father? And what does it mean to be born again of water and of spirit? If you are born again of water, which is being baptized again of water... John talks about that. That, you know, I only baptize you with water. There's one who comes after me that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, but John is saying you have to be baptized of both, water and of spirit. So what happened when you were baptized of water? What happened at Pentecost when you got the baptism of water? Because all these people were getting baptized of water. And of course, we've talked about that this idea of baptism wasn't invented by John the Baptist. It was around for centuries before John the Baptist was doing it. But something was different about what John the Baptist was doing than what the baptism that was going on in the Judaic, you know, the, the Judaic rituals of baptism at that time. John was probably going back to what Moses was actually trying to tell people with his baptism, you know, when they washed up at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's what John was doing. He was going back to that. But the people had strayed away. They thought they were still doing what Moses said. But they were not. Just like people think in America, well, we're never going to be a socialist nation. But you are. Maybe not as bad as Venezuela, you know, uh, 
maybe not as uh, bad or maybe worse than Sweden. Uh, you know, actually, it just depends on what you're looking at because, you know, if you're going to actually compare the two nations, well, it's very difficult to compare Sweden. It's a very small a nation. It you know, it's just got a few million people in relationship to the 300 million people, 400 million people almost that are in America. But uh, it it got very socialist, but it was a very homogeneous group of people at one time. And uh, they had a very strong work ethic because of the fact that it's difficult to survive in a place that gets as cold as Sweden. And, uh, you know, it's it's the North Country. But people had learned how to work together and were hardworking people. And so going over to socialism, they were bringing with them their culture of hard work and caring for one another and helping one another out and uh, being independent thinking. Uh, that was partly created by centuries of living in, you know, Sweden, which is, you know, very beautiful in the, uh, well, actually, they think it's very beautiful in the wintertime. I mean, snow makes them happy. <laughs> so, uh, because they're used to it. It's part of their culture. And, uh, you know, if, if you were from Hawaii and you were living in Sweden, you'd think like, what do we do the other six months of the year? <laughs> but then again, you might adjust, uh, so the environment itself has an effect on the nature of the people. But when they became socialist, something happened. It began to change in the people. It began to close their mind off to certain realities because they no longer had to, on a day-to-day basis, worry about the needy in their community. The government would do that. And, uh, the, you know, they didn't have to... They didn't operate by, you know, the folk people being charitable with one another and helping one another out, which much of that had been done at one time through the church. But socialism, as I've mentioned before, quoting other people in history, socialism is the religion you get when you you, you lose your religion. And that's what religion was. It was taking care of the needy of society. It was the church being the benefactors of society but the church was not you know some pope or you know some archbishop or some priest over 500 people in a congregation the church was a network of ministers that helped take care of the needy in society uh, what the the romans would call benefaction benefaction which included bearing the expense of public service uh, furnishing expenditures of uh, enormous sums for relief from the effects of disaster, earthquake, providing material for war, and uh, supplying grain in times of necessity by diversity in uh, uh, grain-carrying ca- shipments, you know. So, all this stuff I'm just quoting from that uh, Glasgow uh, paper, uh to obtain the doctorate. This is this is what the benefaction of Rome was doing, but you couldn't but this is all done through the religious temples of Rome. That's where you went to get your free bread if you were a Roman citizen. If you were a citizen through the system of the Pharisees, you would go to the the, the temple or through the network of synagogues. Synagogues were usually ten families. 
And they were gathered together in a network, much like we see Moses putting together for his judicial system, which Jethro already knew about, which the Teutons were doing, which was common knowledge in those days, this ten hundreds and thousands, which was what Christ commanded his disciples, make the people sit down in that tens, hundreds, and thousands, before they got even one loaf of bread, or morsel of bread, or piece of fish. They had to sit down and organize themselves in this tens, hundreds, and thousands. That was commanded by Christ. And the people had to do it themselves. Because, like I was saying earlier, which is why I'm leading into this, being a supervisor in the world, where you can say, you guys do it this way, or you're fired, I can't do that in the church. I have to make the people sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands, but I can't make the people sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands. So how do I make the people without exercising authority? Well, I say, well, we're not going to distribute any loaves and fishes till you guys sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands. <laughs> you know, we help out people all the time. We've taken care of people uh, in, in health situations. We, you know, we've taken care of widows, make sure they don't freeze. We've repaired things. We've uh, provided shelter for people, and we had the means to do that because we worked really hard. We didn't, we didn't just go out and become some mendicant minister wandering around, usually living off of the everybody else's labors. <laughs> we actually went out and labored and provided a place where we could offer shelter to other people, offer food to other people. But if we're going to do the loaves and fishes things, if we're going to do the kingdom of God thing, if we're going to do the Christian thing, you have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. I have people requesting things all the time, you know, because I'm kind of, you know, stick up because we have all these websites and all these audios and videos. And so people are coming to me and saying, you know, can you help me out? Can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? Well, where's your minister? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't have a minister. I, I wanted you to be my Well, if all the people that contacted me over the years, I was their minister, I would be, I would be totally burnt out. I'd be run ragged. I can't do it. Christ knew you can't do it. You know, we've written articles showing how, you know, this problem of ministerial burnout. That's why Christ had this other plan. That's why Jethro said, you know, you ought to try it this way. That's why Moses did it that way. This is why the Teutons did it that way. This is why so many nations who were free nations for, you know, hundreds of years, over thousands of years, we've seen this. They gather together in this tens, hundreds, and thousands. And then it doesn't all fall on one person. I mean, my schedule this week is absolutely chock full. Absolutely got all kinds of things I have to do. But I still have people saying, hey, can you drop everything and help me out? Well, were you able to sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands to help others out? Or are you just doing your own thing? You know, it's just not going to work out that way. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this when we come back and what the Patronus was and and uh, how to get back to the kingdom and the ways of the kingdom. We'll be right back. So... We were talking about benefaction in the time of Rome and the Patronus and the Pater, uh, uh, Filius and these different things. Uh, but I haven't mentioned some of these terms yet, but this is what they were writing about in, 
in this uh, uh, paper on uh, almsgiving in the early church in early Rome. Uh, because they took care of one another through the temples of Rome. This is what religion was. It was the performance of your duty to the gods and your fellow man. That's what religion meant. Threskia, which is the Greek word that we see in the original text that is translated, often translated religion, uh, is is a, a word that has to do with what you do. And that's why Christ was talking about what you do. Paul talks about, you know, faith. Fides, you know, what you believe. But that Fides is what drives you to do what you do because you believe in what you're, you know, that this is right and this is good. And so, and Paul talks about those who do certain things or don't do certain things, you know, covetous, etc. They, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They can go around and say they've accepted Christ all they want, but if they're still covetous, if they still have not forgiven the their enemy, much less their brother, then there's no place for them in the kingdom. Even though they say, I believe. They say, I believe in Jesus. They, they confess them with the, their mouth, but the, with their actions, they deny him. And, you know, when Paul talks about confess with the mouth... He was living in a time where if you confessed Christ, if you went and got the baptism at Pentecost, you were kicked out of the social welfare system set up by Herod and the Pharisees. You could not go there anymore for aid, for, you know, for free bread. If there was a shortage of food, you were out because you weren't a member. You you weren't a client of the patrons of Rome or the patron uh, Herod and the Pharisees, you were out. And so all those people who got baptized, the thousands of families, I mean, you had 2,000 one day, 3,000 the next, those were heads of families. Just like those 5,000 heads of families at the loaves and fishes. See, that that's it wasn't 5,000 people, it was 5,000 heads of families because it was those men and their families. So it could have been 20,000 people, 30,000 people that were, that had, you know, had, there was seemed to be a shortage of food and suddenly there was enough food. Everybody said miracle. How did that happen? Well, it happened because they sat down in the tens, hundreds of thousands. Had they not sat down, there wouldn't be enough. And I'm sure it took a little bit of time for everybody to do that. Now they might have been already previously organizing themselves in in that fashion because that was a well-known way in which organized large numbers of people. Yeah, I've seen and I've talked about, you know, when they had the the flood uh with Hurricane Katrina and people were hanging out in this stadium because it was high ground and uh you couldn't go to the re- there was no power. You couldn't go to the restrooms because of the fact that you could be mugged or raped or whatever because there was these thugs going around that would kind of do whatever they wanted. Well, if those people understood the tens, hundreds, and thousands, they could have organized themselves and the thugs would have made a run for it. But in order to take the time to organize yourself in that tens, hundreds, and thousands, and I've given stories of how some of the people were organizing themselves. They didn't understand the tens, hundreds, and thousands, but they had common sense. And so they were organizing themselves. 
uh, and because that's just what it is. It's, the kingdom of God is full of right reason. The kingdom of God is is a, a, a common sense, practical system. It also requires a certain spirit because you have to be baptized in water and in spirit. When they got the baptism of Jesus Christ, they were kicked out of one system and they had to organize another alternative system immediately. And that alternative system did not include men who would call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority. They were benefactors, and this is what this paper is showing over and over again, is that the church was the benefactors instead of the Patronus of Rome. Wasn't, you know, wasn't Caesar who was going to be the benefactor. It was going to be the church. But it was going to do it through some sort of intimate means where they were able to rightly divide the bread from house to house. This is one of the biggest problems when there's a food shortage. And they outlaw, you know, stocking up. They outlaw hoarding. They outlaw price gouging. And they actually can come in like they did in Russia and just confiscate what you have. And they decide to redistribute it. Which is what's going on in Venezuela. You you can go to the store and they, they may bring food to the store, but I can guarantee you that all the cronies of the people in power, they're going to be well fed. They just had Chavez's daughter, who's now a billionaire, you know, um, on Instagram or wherever they put these pictures up and everything. And she's basking in, you know, some sunny beach somewhere as a billionaire and the people in Venezuela are starving. How did that happen? It's because you wanted to have the government be your benefactor, but you also wanted to give the government the power to exercise authority. You see, and Christ wants the government of God, the kingdom of God, to be the benefactor of the people. That's what pure religion is. That's what religion is. Pure religion is doing it unspotted by those men who exercise authority. So if you want to have the government force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, even if your neighbor is rich, which is what Alexandria Cortez, she hasn't thought this out. You know, she is a victim of the previous generation's sloth and avarice. Now, Eventually, hopefully, it would just be amazing if all of a sudden she is enlightened. We we need to pray for her enlightenment instead of just make fun of her and all the other people who think socialism, you know, Bernie Sanders of the world. Bernie Sanders, I don't really think he believes in socialism. He's been saying it for a long time. But, you know, he's he's a millionaire. Pelosi's a millionaire. All these people, they live in mansions, you know, and... Uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren, she lives in a mansion. She, she come from somewhat humble beginnings. And, you know, she says that she wants other people to have opportunity. You know, like she did. She was able to go to college on, uh, a reduced, uh, expenses and scholarships and aid because she was an American Indian. Oh, wait, she wasn't an American Indian. <laughs> she said she was, and so she, through fraud, she may not have known, but she said she was. 
And it's very clear that she's not American. In one, what is it, one, one thousandth, uh, one thousand two hundred fiftieth uh, American Indian. But she got a cheaper access to college because she made that claim. It was false, but she got that. And she got that access at other people's expense. You know, at the other people who were paying the taxes at their expense. And she wants that same opportunity, I guess, for other people. Well, why, you know, my great-grandfather uh, became what would be called a wealthy man in his day by wheat farming in North Dakota. He went out to North Dakota, hard times. I mean, they lived in sod huts and uh, had mules to plow the fields with. And had to move the rocks out by hand or by pulling with a mule. A lot of work. I mean, a lot of work. And But by the time he was like 45, he was able to retire as a wealthy man from walking behind a plow. <laughs> I, I think he had oxen at first and then he eventually got mules. What did he do with that wealth? Did he build a big, huge mansion and put a fence around it and live in it. No, he actually put lots and lots of kids through college. Now, college didn't cost as much in those days, but I mean, proportionally speaking, it, theoretically, if you look at inflation, it, it still cost a lot. But he put them through school, higher education, and they became very successful. And he had the hopes that they, you know, if he ever fell on hard times and didn't have any money, uh, they would be there for him. He, I think he died around 56, 57, I can't remember now, it might be slightly inaccurate. But he fell down a flight of stairs because they didn't have electricity yet and he opened up the door and he couldn't see the stairs. It was in a strange place and he had taken the wrong door. And he took a step and he fell down the stairs and he was killed. So he didn't, you know, he never even got to what we would call retirement age today. But still he put all those kids through school. And they became more successful, hopefully, because they got more education. Today, I'm not sure sending a kid to higher education would be a good thing. I mean, it depends on what you're trying to learn, I suppose. But there's an awful lot of things people are learning in college and all they're doing is creating debt. All these kids who graduated when that from what he had helped them out with, those weren't student loans. They didn't have to pay them back. They could pay it forward. They could help them out if he ever needed help. This this is the kingdom of God. That's the way it works. But the kingdoms of Rome, with its patronus who exercises authority, that's another kind of government. That wants to force the neighbor to contribute to your welfare. If you want that, and this is what's happened, is they they don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. They think it's okay to force their neighbor through men who exercise authority to contribute to their welfare. This is what socialism is. Because socialism is not just an economic system. It's a political economic system. And by political, we mean, and this is one of the things that I had originally scheduled to talk about, is, you know, what, what do we mean political? <laughs> political, relating to the government or public affairs of a country, relating to the idea 
or strategies of a particular party or group in politics? What are the ideas or strategies of Christ in his politics? Because, I mean, his kingdom, his people, you know, uh, like the apostles who were in the temple daily, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. They were they were running the welfare system of Christians in Israel. Rightly dividing the bread from house to house. I found a great deal more information how some of these temples were used as granaries. You can go all the way back to Egypt. And there were the temple granaries. They were also operating like banks in Egypt. Because they were actually charging interest. And grain was money. They had other forms of money. But the gold and silver was in the hands of the government because the people were in bondage. We were never to go back to that bondage. And, and the whole message of Moses was to take people out of that bondage. And Christ and Moses were in agreement. Pentecost was another exodus where they came out of a bondage and were now free. But they had to learn something. They had to do something. They had to practice pure religion, not impure religion. They had to take care of the needy of their society, unspotted by the world. And the word world there is constitutional orders and systems of government, because the systems of, the constitutional systems of government exercised authority one over the other to provide the benefits, the ben, that's why they call them benefactors, for the people, the welfare for the people, for the needy. The church had to provide for the welfare of the needy, through faith, hope, and charity. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. Trust in Christ. Fides is translated faith. It's also translated trust. Many people today trust in the social security system, although they're beginning to have doubts about it. You take care of my parents. I'm not going to take care of my parents. You take care of my parents. The government takes care of my parents. I mean, I know a lot of parents who want to make sure they get their social security check because they know their kids aren't going to take care of them. I was just talking to somebody the other day about the fact that uh, he's got numerous siblings, but they don't really want to take care of their mother. You know, that it's it's too much. Instead of coming together and working together, they put it all on one or two members of the family. And... You know, they think, well, they get a social security check. They, you know, they got these other sources. That is not the kingdom of God. That's the Corbin, Corbin of the Pharisees. Remember, the Corbin is you sacrifice to the temple and the temple takes care of the needy of society. And they put amongst that needy, not just widows and orphans, but uh, men and women who had children but fell on hard times. And the children said, oh no, we pay into the temple, you get your help from the temple. We, we're not gonna help you. You know, oh, they'll help a little bit, you know, they'll, you know, take them shopping once in a while, you know. Or maybe they said, well, I'm, I'm, I went home to help my mom and dad because they were getting old and they needed help. And what is actually going on is I'm living in mom and dad's house. And their pension and Social Security is providing for me. <laughs> so, that's Christ said not to do it that way. Paul said not to do it that way. 
James said, if you're doing it that way, it's not pure religion. Pure religion is taking care of the needy of society, including especially your parents and your family, unspotted by the constitutional orders and systems of government. See, because you look to men who exercise authority, you yourself have gone under authority. The politics of the kingdom, the political power, is in the hands of the people. But that also means that the political responsibilities of the welfare of your neighbors, of your parents, of your children, is your responsibility, not somebody else's. And this network of tens, hundreds, and thousands was simply the mechanics by which you can apply those principles, apply that responsibility. That's the politics of the kingdom. Politics is defined as the activities associated with the governance of a country or other areas, especially the debate or conflict among individuals over parties having or hoping to achieve power. Well, if you want... Now, what word power should... If we were to translate that word power into the Greek because the Bible is originally written in Greek, we have a a choice of a couple of different words that we could put there in that place. Dunamis is one of them. Exosia is another one. Eleutheria is actually one. Exosia and Eleutheria, they kind of mean the same thing, although Exosia is much stronger. Both words mean the right to choose. Both words are translated from time to time into liberty. Both words could be translated into power because the right to choose is the power to choose. And of course, that's what we see in Romans 13. Let every man remain subject to the higher power. The word power there is a word translated liberty in other places. Considered by Aristotle and uh, poets of the time and people who wrote in Koine Greek to mean liberty. It was actually stronger than the word Eleutheria, which is the common word translated into liberty, which at one point in Greek history was considered almost defunct as liberty. But uh, the, the word exousia, which translated liberty or power, was the stronger word. It meant the absolute power to choose. You have In the politics of Christ, you have the absolute power to choose. If I'm a minister of the kingdom of God, I don't have any right to choose over you. What I do have a right to choose over is how I serve you. What I do for you or what I don't do for you. There are no entitlements in the kingdom of God. I don't have to provide you with anything. I serve Christ. Now, here's the problem. Christ commanded that his disciples make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands before they distribute the bread from group to group, from family to family. They they had to do that before they could serve the people. The people would not. What if all the people there, you know, 5,000 heads of families, 30,000 people said, we don't want to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. 
We don't want to sit down in these individual companies and groups. We don't want to do that. If they said that, what would happen? I guess there wouldn't be any story about the loaves and fishes. <laughs> there would there would be no service. Because the people said, no, we don't. But they all did it because they heard that Jesus said, make the people sit down and attend. Time. And they knew what it meant. Most of you don't know what it means. They, you don't even know how to do it. You won't, Even if I told you how to do it, many of you would not do it. You would not organize yourself in that way. You just say, you know, I, I just saw the other day, I actually pulled it up uh, and, and looked at it in, in the movie Jesus of Nazareth. There's a scene there, and, and it's with Mary Magdalene. Uh, it's not Lauren Bacall. Uh, I was trying to think of who it was. Who, uh, I can't remember her name. <laughs> Right now, but anyway, the actress who played Mary Magdalene, I thought she did an excellent job. I don't think that's actually a good portrayal of Mary Magdalene, but of the character as the story was written for the movie, she did a very good job in portraying in, in the acting of that person. I thought she was a lot better in that than she was when she was in The Graduate. But uh, the scene is is that okay we only have these few loaves and fishes and they put them in the baskets and they go out to give them to the people and then suddenly they're full of course this is hollywood it's not necessarily how it happened and we don't we don't have detailed explanation of how it happened we know how the story is told by a lot of people but they were supposed to take that food that they had that the apostles had because jesus was hungry too he had been Speaking all day and he hadn't eaten anything. He says, and he asked, so what do we have? And somebody said, well, we have this. I said, take what you have and give it to the people. After they sat down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. I equate this to exactly what Alexander the Great did when crossing the desert. And somebody ran from, somebody found a water hole up ahead. There was water up ahead. And, I mean, these people are dying of thirst. They had animals with them. Was Alexander the Great, the motion of his troops, which included all kinds of other people, uh, was a huge undertaking. And they were short on water. And a runner came back with water in his helmet. And he, there's paintings along this line. And gives it to Alexander to drink. He couldn't carry back for everybody else, but he was bringing the good news that there is water ahead. If you can make it to the water up ahead, everybody will drink. But I'm, I brought this water back just for Alexander because I can't bring enough for everybody. And Alexander holds it up in the air and pours it out in the sand. And he says, I'm not going to drink till everybody drinks. Well, that's what Jesus was saying. You know, this is our food. This is what we have. I'm not going to eat. Until everybody eats. And so he takes what was meant for him and the apostles and he gives it away. He commands that it's given away. And he gives it away. And next thing you know, there's enough to eat. Now, if you believe the movie and what a lot of priests have said for hundreds of years to the poor, (laughs) that they were actually supposed to be feeding, but were not, and say, well, the Lord will provide. And then they go back to their monastery. Which is why the monasteries ended up being destroyed is because they had already turned their back on God. 
I mean, for, for centuries before that, not, this is not the history of all monasteries for all times. I mean, the monasteries were seats of knowledge and education and healthcare and, and provisions in times of need and they provided a great service, but they became affluent and decadent. Not all of them, many of them. Most of the, the decent monasteries were destroyed by Henry VIII and I've done more research on that to put in the new book. And, you know, I mean, he just came in with a sword and just, and he just stole the property. And then supposedly he was going to take over as the head of the church. He was going to take over the welfare of the people. But he ended up selling the property to finance his wars. And then this is what devastated English economy. But this is what devastated Venezuelan economy. And this is what's going to devastate your economy unless you repent. But we'll talk about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, anyway, we we looked at the news a little bit with this talk about uh, socialism, what's not socialism, and 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 people often don't understand what these these terms mean. They don't understand the the definition of the words themselves uh, or how they were used in context. And then there is the context in the time in which they're used. And, uh, uh, they, they don't really, uh, they don't really put these ideas together. And, and like I, I, I was pointing out to somebody again the other day that, uh, in, in the, uh, the phrase, the government of the people for the people and by the people was originally not Abraham Lincoln, but Abraham Lincoln got it because he actually had a copy of Wycliffe's Bible. And in the prologue to that Bible, it said, this is the book for the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Talking to my grandson the other day, I pointed out that government is mentioned 700 times in the Bible, religion five times. And Four of the five times that it's mentioned, it's in a bad sense. And only once in the Bible is it mentioned in a good sense. So that, uh, those ideas, you said, so what does that mean? It means how you relate to your government needs to be blessed by Christ. It's just not, you don't just obey your government because it's your government. It's better that you obey God. And if the government asks you to do, this people always tell me, if the government ever asks me to do something that is against my faith, uh, then I won't do it. Well, is it against your faith, faith to covet your neighbor's goods? Is it against your faith to hire men to exercise authority over your neighbors so that you can be socially secure? Is is that okay? <laughs> you know, so, uh, like I talked about the, this word power. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So what word do they have there in 1 Corinthians 4.20 for the word power? Is it exousia? Is it dunamis? Is it one of the other words? Well, it's actually dunamis, which is... Uh, the actual that actually means strength or power or ability. Exousia means the right to make a choice. Uh, do, do I have a right to make a choice for you? See, 
Acacio thinks that she has a right to make a choice for rich people as to what they get to keep and what they don't get to keep. She's completely blind to the idea that that's coveting your neighbor's goods. He said, well, I only covet my rich neighbor's goods. And I do it for a good cause. Well, you're not a Christian. Because Christ doesn't say, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods unless he's really, really rich. Then you get to covet his goods. You don't. You don't get to covet his goods. If you're coveting his goods, even if he's rich, you weren't even to covet the goods of your enemy. You weren't supposed to take, you make war for private gain. Rome didn't get that. I mean, they did at one time. But eventually, they got to the point where let's conquer somebody else and we'll take over and spread our Pax Romana to them. <laughs> so, but that isn't, that isn't the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of Rome. You're not supposed to be going that way. You're supposed to be going another way, entirely different than that. You know, I just... Uh, saw a story come out this week also, Panaris, you know, had a socialist plan to pay whatever you thought was fair in a restaurant. And they they tried this in the numerous cities. I can't remember all the cities they tried it in. But I guess they're about ready to close down one of the last ones, the holdouts, according to the Daily Wire, because they were mobbed by homeless and students and people who just wanted to eat for free. You know, that's the zombie mobs. You know, people want to build a wall. I mean, if you look at, you, you look at what's going on in, um, these different the cities along the Mexican border. What, what's going on there? What, what's happening in those cities? I mean, what, what are they, uh, dealing with? I actually had the statistics here, but uh, the crime rate along the Mexican border has just skyrocketed. It's just unbelievable. Uh, how much murder and robbery has been taking place there. So wh- why is that? Why, why is that kind of violence, uh, appearing along the Mexican border? And that's partly why they want to create that, that wall. Um, just, just the numbers. Uh, rose by 33%. I mean, there was like, uh, four murders per hour. Four murders per hour. That's like every 15 minutes somebody's killed. Uh, and that was in 2018, shattering this country's record for, uh, a second consecutive year. Investigated, uh, investigators opened 33 1,341 murder cases last year. More than 91 a day compared to 25,000 in 2017. I mean, 25,000 is a lot. (laughs) But, you know, uh, 33,000 is even more. I mean, just in... uh, was it Guadalajara? No, uh, I can't remember the name of the town, but, uh, you know, just in one town, 3,290 investigations. I mean, it's, it's making Chicago look like a bunch of sissies. And so people want to put up a wall and stop that. A wall's not going to stop that. 
I'm, I'm not saying don't put up the wall. That's, that's the politics of the United States. I'm interested in the politics of Christ. And I've said it for years that if you would repent and create a system that's in conformity to what Christ was preaching, in other words, a system of social welfare where you're taking care of one another, you're helping one another take care of your parents, taking care of your children, educating your children. You're, you're actually willing to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and provide not just meat and bread, but care and concern and witness for one another. I mean, how do we establish ourselves as a church today? Do we incorporate with the state, then we become a corporation of the state. Then we're no longer separate from the state. And if we were incorporated by Christ, that doesn't exist anymore. We point that out. They actually state that right in the law. That if you incorporate under this state, which churches don't have to do, you're automatically, any other previous incorporation, which is the corpus of Christ, is null and void as if it never happened. You've now gone under the jurisdiction of the state. And the church should not be under the jurisdiction of the state. The people, generally speaking, are. But the church should not be going under the jurisdiction of the state. They, the, the church should be separate from the world. That, that word world, constitutional order or system of government. That's what he's saying there. Your, the church is to be separate. And, and other people thought the same thing. The church should be separate. Independently separate. But it has to be in spirit and truth. It has to be not just baptism with water. See, if you got water baptism at Pentecost, you were cast out of the system, social welfare system set up by Pharisees in the Herod. And you were not being able to go to their treasury anymore, their Corbin. That's a, the word Corbin is translated into treasury at least once in the Bible. And Corbanus, which is the Latin for the same word, it was translated treasury, and it was also later the the Corbanos box is where you put the money to help the poor in the church. But that money in the church was collected by free will offerings. The Corbanos of Herod and the Corbanos of Rome, that those treasuries were filled by forced offerings, compelled offerings, socialist offerings. It was the sacrifices of the people that they had to pay in. So they were already taking a bite out of one another. They were already becoming the zombies that Polybius warned about. The savages that Polybius warned about 150 years before John the Baptist. You, and this is what you see happening in America. And it's pervasive in your schools. It's pervasive in the minds of your children. And, and now pervasive in the minds of adults who are going to be voting to take a bite out of you. So how do you get back to that free, to be that free soul under God? You have to repent, think differently. You have to realize, wait a minute, I should not be coveting my neighbor's goods to the agency or the, the politics of the world. I should be sitting down in the politics of Christ. See, there's power in the politics of Christ too, but it's not in the hands of the minister in the hands of the people. There's a division of power in the hands of the people. You have authority over your family. You have authority over your children. Over over what you teach them. 
over what you feed them. Maybe you, you know, maybe the food that they get down at the local public school is bad. I can tell you the information is incorrect. <laughs> it's false. I mean, you can't even hardly get good history books anymore. They just deleted whole sections of history. So, what you teach your children, I mean, fathers teach thy sons. I mean, that's what it says in the Bible. The word there that you see translated sons is almost, uh, oh, it's, it's translated, I think, sons probably 2,000 times, 2,000 plus times. It's translated children 1,500 times. And there are several other translations. The same word. So, you know, parents teach thy children. And remind them of what you've learned. But you, a lot of you haven't even learned it yet. And that's why we're talking to you about the kingdom of God. The politics of the kingdom of God. And, and you see this pervasive zombie, bloodthirsty, ravenous approach to politics of the world. You know, the you know, Covington article. Some people that I mentioned before, some people go out looking for identity politics. Others have it thrust upon them, and that's kind of what happened to the Covington boys. They they were not being political. They were waiting for the bus. There were other people there being political, and then people come up and tried to create an incident, lie about the what happens. Everybody, I mean, they're th- threatening the lives of these kids, and they jump to conclusions. And I understand. I I did the same thing during a Kosovo event way back, where they showed these people behind barbed wire on the front of Time magazine, and you saw this really skinny guy with, you know, that looked like he'd been starving to death, and they're all standing behind barbed wire, and they talk about concentration camps in the article and all this stuff. Ends up these people weren't in a concentration camp. And that was just a skinny guy. <laughs> he was just really skinny. He had his shirt off because he was sunning himself. They were, they had been sitting around on the grass and they set up the cameras on the side of this, one side of this barbed wire fence, which you could just walk around. It was just, there was no gate. You could actually just walk around the fence. Nobody was in prison. And they took these pictures. They got these people to come over and stand by the fence like they're all in prison. They're not in prison. They just made up the whole story to get a reaction out of the people, and it works. You know, it's like in the zombie movie, movies where you make this noise and all the zombies start heading towards the noise. <laughs> you, know, you, you control them and manipulate them. But the thing is, do you want to be born again or do you want to remain a zombie? Looking around to how you can take a bite out of your neighbor. You, you don't want to be doing that. You want to become free souls under God. You have to think differently and realize taking a bite out of your neighbor is a bad thing. So, you know, the, you know, we saw the same thing in the Kavanaugh hearings. And when we see the same thing, you know, we talked about it last week about, you know, I hate Trump clubs. I think it was last week. Uh, and, and now, you know, you have white privilege and all this stuff and the patriarchy. That's all bad and everything. But these people are actually promoting and moving more and more towards despotism. And even if you build a wall, the spirit, the thinking that brought about all these murders in Mexico has already invaded America. It's being taught in your schools. Subtly. 
slowly because they're removing certain information and then they're saying other things are okay. And and people say, you know, they don't want to lose their Social Security. I paid in. What you were paying in was supposed to take care of the needy back then. Unfortunately, you also gave your government the power to borrow against the future, which is why they're always trying to raise the debt ceiling. I guess in a couple more days, they may close the government again because they need to raise... They only opened it up shortly, but they, they haven't raised the debt ceiling and passed a budget that will raise the debt ceiling. Raising the debt ceiling is making your children more surety for debt than they were last year. And now, what does the Bible tell you if you find yourself a surety to debt? It says, remember the ant that has no ruler, but works together. So how do you work together in the political system of God? You sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You form a congregation, not of your buddies, those who love you. Just form a congregation. And you learn to love one another. If you only gather with those who love you and promote your ego and your vanity and your thing, you have to gather together to promote Christ's thing, which is to lay down your life for your fellow man. So you're gathering together for the purposes of sacrifice. So that you can pick up a life more abundant. So, one of the things I had here in my notes, and I, I did some study on it a couple of weeks ago. I haven't read about it lately, but it's this uh, a thing they call quantum neuro- neurophysics. From non-living matter to quantum neurobiology and psychopathology. So, boy, that's a, those are a mouthful. The concept of a quantum brain or quantum mind or quantum... Consciousness has been increasingly gaining currency in recent years. What, is, what do you mean currency? I mean, the people are talking about it more and more. There's more and more, more and more evidence that there's something going on here. And of course, this is what was happening at Pentecost, you know, with the flame <laughs> over the people's head, is that there was an introduction of another pattern, you know, what I call spiritual genetics. Maybe we could call it even spiritual epigenetics. Because epigenetics is is more powerful than genetics. Because epigenetics is what turns on your genetics. It makes it so that you can heal. So that you can actually, this power, the ability, the dunamis, the power to heal others and to overcome. And you, you know, you actually... Uh, engage some of these powers and you don't even know it. But you have to, you have to give glory to God and realize that, you know, if you're injured and you get this miraculous healing, or you're injured in a miraculous way where everybody should have died, or maybe you should have died, or maybe been injured even worse, but you were only injured this much, like there was some sort of divine protection. You don't want to take the credit for that. If you have understanding that other people don't seem to have, you, you don't want to take credit for that. You, and one of the ways in which you are sucked into taking credit for that is you look down on other people who don't see what you see. You don't want to do that. You don't want to look down on others because they don't, you know, like 
uh, Alexia, what is her, <laughs> Ocasio-Cortez, um, AOC, they're starting to call her AOC, easier to say, which uh, is also could be the Association of Oregon Counties, it's also called AOC, <laughs> so I made a few jokes about that this week, but uh, I don't want to belittle people who don't see, who don't get it, who are going the wrong way. I want to call them to turn around and go the other way. Think differently. This is the quantum neophysics. If you will think differently, God will give you more to think about, more to realize, more to understand. The concept of a quantum brain is a general framework. Included in it are basically four main subheadings. And, you know, we could go through all those subheadings, the quantum mind, the, the consciousness debate, you know, the participation of a conscious observer in the experiment will radically change our understanding of the universe and our relationship with outside world. In other words, they're saying that, you know, light will function differently if it's observed than when it's not observed. Well, what happens if light is observed by somebody who's filled with the Holy Spirit? Will light function differently? I have seen over the years some people beginning to see the light. What we call, I mean, Christ is called the light. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he also is equated, the goodness is equated with light. And we know that light can be affected supposedly we know by the fact that it's either observed or not observed if you don't observe the light it may act in one way if you do observe the light it may act in another way what if the observer is different this one is filled with the Holy Spirit this one is not filled with the Holy Spirit will light act differently your understanding is a product of God your realization, your consciousness is a product of God. How do you make the world around you in the image of God? How do you express the image of God in you as a being? I mean, we were created in the image of God, but people are changing, altering their nature. By going against nature. I mean, people talk about homosexuality is a sin and all that stuff. Obviously, homosexuality is not natural. If if that is natural, then we're going to die as a species. I mean, it's a, it, we're going to die out because that doesn't reproduce the species. So it's not natural. It's a perversion of the natural use. Is it a sin or is it a byproduct of another deviation from the consciousness of God. From that, you know, we're created in the image of God. If we deviate from the image of God, the character of God, the name of God, the way of God, if we deviate from that, we will be altered. So homosexuality in, in a civilization is a symptom. Abortion in a society is a symptom of another problem. If you can alter the way in which light acts by observation can your soul be altered 
by observation of God. God is seeing you all the time. You want a communion, a knowledge of God, then you have to see you as God sees you. You have to see the truth about you in order to recover, to get back to being made in the image of God. You have to see yourself as God sees you. You have to see the truth about yourself. How do you do that? How do you recover to see the truth about yourself? How do you get back to that uh, life force, that tree of life? See, when you decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you could not see with the power of the tree of life. Your vision of reality, of right reason, was altered. You were cut off from the source of right reason. Yeah, I use that word right reason. That Another way to say that is logos. Uh, divine will. You were cut off from the divine will because you did contrary to the will of God. That That goes on every day. Every time you do contrary to the will of God, you're cut off more. When you do according to the will of God, then you are brought back towards the garden. That's the process. But how do you know what the will of God is? You can't know what the will of God is unless you are willing to see your own willfulness. And see, the the sin of socialism, yeah, it's coveting your neighbor's goods, but you willfully desire to take away from your neighbor so that you will be benefited. You can make all kinds of excuses. I paid in. You know, that's the way we do things today. If nobody is, you know, taking care of one another through faith, open charity anymore. So this is our only alternative. No, you, you have an alternative. Lay down your life. Die. Be crucified with Christ. Give up the ghost. Have faith that God can provide for you. Can open doors for you. Can move mountains for you. Actually have some experience in moving mountains. At least a portion of them. At least 30 tons of mountain. <laughs> so, and, and probably more. So what, what am I talking about? What, what are we dealing with? How do we recover? How do we get back to that state where we are one with God? One with Christ? made in his image again. Able to, through our observation, heal the sick. Have the power, the dunamis, the ability. Well, first you have to have the exousia, the power of choice. Well, you do have a power of choice. You don't have a choice about a lot of things. You don't don't have as much choice about what you want to contribute to the systems of the world as you once had because you've become entangled again in the elements of bondage. But you have some choices. And if you exercise those choices, you may, in a righteous way, you may get more choices. That's what sets you free. Is to take what God has given you and do well with it. We'll be back to Keys of the Kingdom. We'll welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we talk about seeing yourself as you really are. Seeing yourself as God sees you. Willingness to do that. That's going to be painful. Because you're not perfect. You know, none of us are perfect. But to see the truth about that, our weaknesses, our failings, our, our selfishness. That, that's a challenge to see that. 
you know, Thomas Jefferson, like I, I've said recently, do you want to know who you are? Don't ask. Act. Actions will delineate and define you. They also tell you what you're not. Are you charitable? Are you loving? Well, maybe not so much. And not so, you know, that's what one individual said to me is that when they started, they they ran a private school and they started receiving aid from the government for their private school, they noticed that the involvement of the parents was not so much. It It declined because now the government was doing it. I just recently saw, you know, a huge drama in local government here where uh, somebody, I'm not going to get into the details, so I'm trying to think of how to give you the principles without telling the whole parable. Eventually, I'll tell the parable, (laughs) but it is still ongoing. But uh, there was a, you know, the politics of the world, they they have departments and uh, they have sections. That's how they divide power. You know, I mean, like you have the three divisions of power in federal government, which is uh, judiciary, executive branch, and the congressional branch. And they talk about separation of powers. Well, even within those branches, they have separation of powers, appellate courts and supreme courts and local courts and, and all these. And they all make certain decisions, and then the appellates may review the other. And such divisions exist in the kingdom of God, too. But it's everything is like, inverted it's reversed it's not top down it's bottom up so all those responsibilities in those different departments in the world they they're either uh uh they're they're not the same as the departments in the kingdom of god because the departments in the kingdom of god you're the department each individual family is a department now they may sit down in companies of 10 but those companies are just Free assemblies. That's the way they defined it in the Old Testament. Free assemblies. That's what a congregation is. It's a free assembly. It's not a corporation. It's not an unincorporated association. And then you have to look at the history of the word association because in some sense they are associated. But if you use it in a legal sense, then it will be treated as if it was a corporation. And the actions of one will become the responsibility of all. You don't want that. We explain all that in other places. But the essential thing in a free society is that there it's composed of free assemblies. The only corporate body in a free society is basically the family. And the firstborn of the family will be empowered by the father to take certain responsibilities for that family. But in the Old Testament, they talk about the Levites being the firstborn of a nation. But they don't belong to the nation. They're not a corporation of the nation. When they come together as one body, they're not a corporation of the nation. They're a corporation of God. They belong to God. That's what they're trying to tell you in these passages. And this is what the early church was. Jesus called out certain people to be the corpus of Christ, the body of Christ, the corporation of God. The church is supposed to be the corporation of Christ. But unlike many of the churches today, they don't exercise authority over you. They don't tell you what to believe. They're in the business of service, not in exercising authority. Now, they can exercise authority over stuff, but only stuff that is freely given you. The governments of the world exercise authority over stuff, but that stuff is not freely given. It's it's compelled offerings. 
big distinction. You're going to get a different, a whole different way of thinking. You have to have a whole different way of thinking to work and function in the kingdom of God. And it begins to awaken you to your impatience with your mother or your father or your in-laws or with your siblings or whatever it is. It will awaken you to those things and you have to see the pain of that. But it will also give you the dunamis, the power to deal with those problems. But you have it seeing, having eyes to see and ears to hear is absolutely essential. And you gain them mostly not by pointing out the faults of others, but by willing to see your own faults. And you get to see your own faults. By going out and doing what the Father wants you to do. And you find, I find it hard to do this. I find it hard to forgive. I find it hard to give. I, I find it hard to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and stay there in a network of charity. I am tempted to run off and do other things instead. I, mean, I, I need to have reassurance. And actually, one of the reasons why this is, is because you make your congregations, your free assemblies, not so free. You expect a feeling of belonging to come from your congregation. We don't want you to belong to your congregation. We don't want you to belong to the church. We want you to belong to Christ. We don't want the congregations to become that substitute. We certainly don't want the ministers to become the substitute for Christ. And this is what's happened in churches all over the world, religions all over the world, is that their ministers become substitute for the Holy Spirit speaking to you in your heart and your mind. You don't want that. You don't want to go that way. Because as soon as you go that way, if if the congregation or members of the congregation or your minister suddenly rejects you, you have pain. That that pain will travel, we talked about this before, actually travel down the same neuro, physical neuro pathways as regular pain. If I smashed you with a hammer on your finger, uh, the the pain would travel the same pathways as if I rejected you. If I made fun of you ridiculed you, put you down. This is why humility is, humility is armor. It is protection. It is a tank of protection. Armor piercing, the more humble you are, the more, more you are not susceptible to the bombardments of the world. But this rejection, I mean, they study rejection. Just mild forms of rejection will lower your IQ temporarily. And if it continues to go on, it can lower your IQ for a long period. It becomes a habit of being stupid. You know, so how do you get out of that? How do you protect yourself from that? Christ gave you all the answers. And this is what we're going to talk about in the afternoon show is, is recovery. Christ gave you all the answers. And they are what? Giving, forgiveness, love, patience, tolerance, charity. I mean, love and charity, same, same part of the equation. It's not, if if you don't give to people, you don't love people. But of course, now you have to give wisely. How how do you give wisely if you don't have the wisdom of God in you? You know, I've told you before, I mean, physical pain 
If you receive it with a spiritual heart of forgiveness, you forgive the pain, will actually facilitate healing. Emotional pain, traveling along the same neural uh, pathways, if you forgive those people who abuse you, it will automatically begin the process of healing. You instantly, you know, like your superheroes, you know, you shoot, uh, what, who's it, Wolverine, and immediately, you know, his body starts to heal. Instantaneously, you know, the bullet pops out and he starts to heal. Well, in the kingdom of God, you have that power. If you don't have it spiritually, you won't have it physically. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, but, you know, it, it, I mean, literally, you could heal back in minutes. But maybe it will take months. Maybe it'll take weeks. You know, some people take forever to heal. Some people develop sores and they, you know, I mean, they haven't even received a major injury and the sore will not heal. The spirit of the zombie is eating their flesh. And the, the fact is, is that if you let in the spirit of Christ, that light, that way, that other way, that epigenetic spirit of Christ, that healing will transmit into your physical flesh. You can't do it to get healing so you can go out and do bad. You have to do it for righteousness sake. Because that's what you're supposed to be seeking is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. A Harvard professor once said, philosophy does not promise to secure anything external for man. Otherwise, it would be admitting something that lies beyond its proper subject matter. For as material of the uh, carpenter is wood and the statuary bronze, so the subject matter of the art of living is each person's own life. So what you do with your life will determine whether you have life more abundant and what you do with your life, according to Christ, in order to have that life more abundant, is to lay down your life for your fellow man. In the character of Christ. In the way of Christ. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson said, honesty is the first chapter of the book of wisdom. And, and charity without wisdom, well, the government has that. The governments of the world have charity without wisdom and it's destroying whole societies. It's undermining the black communities in places like Detroit and Baltimore and I mean just nationwide. And now it's it's creeping into the white community. I hate to divide these people up into communities. The world should be divided into two groups. The righteous and not so righteous. <laughs> That's it. And color really has, it's not about color, it's about control. You know, your religion, it's not about the package, it's about the power. And the power, the dunamis, it, it enhances as we exercise the exousia, which is another word translated into power, which is the liberty, the right to choose. You choose to lay down your life for others, maybe family member. You You make sacrifices for a family member. But it has to be wise sacrifice. Cannot just be sacrificed for sacrifice's sake. It has to, there has to be wisdom in that sacrifice. And you will be blessed accordingly. You can't do it for the blessing. You have to do it for the righteousness.
doesn't say seek the kingdom of God and the blessings of God. It says seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. And all else will be given unto you. So that that's that's some of the key. But there's actually a quantum level to this whole thing. So you, you come and you suddenly want, I want this. I want that. Oh, if I only had this, then I would be happy. Then I could solve this problem. God can solve all problems, but you have to want to sit down the way God said to sit down and stand up the way God said to stand up and serve one another the way God said to serve one another. Thieves and robbers love one another, but they they don't have the righteousness of God. So the light that passes through them is going to be affected differently than the light that passes through a righteous man. You're going to see things that you could not see before. And like I said, I've seen people who've turned their back because of vanity, because of pride, because of sloth. You know, all these things that we count as vices, gluttony, whatever. They've turned their back on righteousness in the righteous way. What they knew was righteous and went off and did something else. They lose the memory of what is righteous. They lose the ability to see what the light is trying to show them because they're, they're actually turning down the light. And, and you, it's, it's gradual, so you don't even notice it. I mean, it's, it's the slow setting of the sun, you know, that they, they cannot see what is right before them anymore because the room has gotten dimmer. Because they shut out some of the light that was showing them something about them. They did not want to see this about themselves. So they ended up not seeing something else about themselves. And, and they, they fall. They, they, they are traumatized by their own greed, lust, envy or by the abuses of others by their willingness to judge others rather than see I tell you you're falling into a trap by being angry at Trump you're falling into the same trap by being angry at you know Pelosi or uh, Casio these political figures that are in America I mean you have them in Denmark you have them in Australia you have them you know hating the Muslims we see a lot of anti-Muslim because there's there's a lot of Muslims out there doing bad things. And so now you're going to hate Muslims as if that's going to be the solution. No. Seek righteousness. Does It, it doesn't matter whether they're Muslim or they're black or they're Indian or they're, uh, they're uh, selfish or whatever. That's what they are. They are victims of that. Their own trauma has brought them into those mental prisons. And you 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 can't you can't free them by being angry with them you seek the light you bring the candle into the room when everybody else doesn't want to see what's going on they don't want to see what's happening so how do you do that how do how do we get onto that road of recovery and actually i i did an article on recovery from trauma and uh I, I kind of forgot about it. I, I hadn't finished it. I, I really still haven't finished it. 
But I, I just put down an outline. And somebody else had done something similar. They took the word recovery and they made each letter of the word stand for something. And I kind of took their work and looked at it and tried to hone it so that it would be in accordance with the teachings of Christ. Because he's showing you the solution. Unfortunately, you're being red caped by a false church that has been deceived itself. You know, I don't know. I'm not trying to pick on people who are members of certain religions. Because I don't know who the righteous are. I don't need to know. I just need to know righteousness and speak about it and do it and implement it in my own life. Hopefully that will, that will protect other people. Uh, so that, and, but the real protection comes when they begin to walk in the way that Christ said to walk. So anyway, I took that word recovery and I put this down, but I didn't put any biblical quotes and somebody shared it on Facebook with somebody who's, who wanted, who thought, well, this doesn't have anything to do with Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with Christianity and wanted to know quotes that had to do with it. So I just jotted down a few right off the top of my head and put it at the end of each of the, the lines in this. This is just a way of kind of, you know, it's like a parable or something where you tell the story or you put these things into word form and so that people can contemplate it. But you won't learn anything from this unless it begins to touch your heart. And what I don't want the article to touch your heart. I want Christ to touch your heart. And that's why I'm, this is what Christ was always doing, always pointing to the Father. It's not me, but the Father. And that, he says, not by my will, but thine. He says that you had to do the will of the Father. And of course, the will of the Father is that you don't usurp the Father by judging others. You forgive others. You don't exonerate them. You just forget, leave judgment to God. You just express the truth. In order to get good at expressing the truth, you need to see the truth about yourself. Which is back to what I was saying. So this idea of recovering from trauma. Because trauma is pushing you off the path. Something has pushed you off the path. You know, something... Mental trauma, which goes down the same uh, nerve pathways as physical trauma. And emotional trauma, which is tightly connected to mental trauma. I mean, mental trauma could be trying to figure something out. Or something that shocked your senses. You know, like you you see something that you can't forget. That's a combination of both mental and emotional trauma. It can also bring in spiritual trauma. But it's, the whole point is to push you away from the light, push you off the path. The pathway is narrow, the gate is narrow, and somebody wants to push you out of the way so that you you don't actually see the truth. They want to push you into the darkness, drag you into the darkness. What is it? You know, anger draws you into the dark side of the divorce. Because anger is judgment. Anger is unforgiveness. So if anger draws you into the dark side of the force, what draws you into the light side of the force? The light side, the, the, the righteous side, you know, isn't it? What's the antithesis of anger? Forgiveness, patience, tolerance, love in spite of your anger for me, I still love you. You know, you, you'll do a lot more for, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez if you love her than call her names and ridicule her. You know, uh, 
you know, I mean, she does say things that are silly from time to time, but I think she has enough people bashing her and then that you're not going to really help her or all the other people who have these same ideas, you know, because, I mean, you'll probably never get a chance to talk to her, but you'll probably get to talk to somebody like her or thinking like her. Maybe you even think a little bit more like her than you realize. And so... How do you deal with that? How do you overcome that trauma? How do you heal from that? How do you let the light in? And so anyway, I put this little outline together and in, you know, the first letter of recovery is R and the word recognize begins with the letter R. So you have to recognize that there's a problem, that you are a sinner, that there's pain involved with that. Emotional pain, physical pain, and you have to be willing to see that and identify the pain. That's what the pain is there for, to help you. If you, if you could feel no pain, you could literally sit on a scissors, this actually happened to somebody, sat on a scissors, cut an artery, and sit there until you bleed to death. Because you had no pain. You didn't know, you just cut an artery. You didn't feel the pain. Pain is a gift. Say, ow, don't step there. Don't sit there. Don't go there. There's there's a problem here. I've got a sore. It's beginning to hurt. It's saying, I need attention over here. So pain is at least a message. But sometimes the pain is, is cloaked under layers of pain. And so you have to follow the pain in order to get back to the real problem. Because, I mean, you will actually get physical manifestations of pain that are talking about spiritual injuries, spiritual traumas. So anyway, the first thing is to recognize, to look, to observe, to have eyes to see what you can see, ears to hear what you can hear, and to open your hearts and open your minds in order to deal with your problems. See yourself as you really are. E in recovery is, I, is, has to do with examine, which is, is a part of that recognize. Actually, if the word could be spelled different, I would examine first and then recognize. But it doesn't really matter because it's an ongoing reciprocal process. C is, then you have to choose. You have to choose faith. You have to choose hope. You have to choose Something that might bring salvation. Continue to choose. I mean, even recognizing is choosing to recognize. Choosing to examine. But you have to realize that there's a a possibility of salvation. And and choose that possibility. That hope. Uh, o is to overlook. Overlook the pain. You, you don't fight against the pain. You have to overlook the, those who injure you. You have to forgive is what that's coming down to. To overlook is to forgive. I'm not going to convict you. Yeah, you did me wrong. You lied about me. You cheated me. You 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 lied to me. But I'm going to forgive that because I'm going to figure that you're entangled again in the yoke of bondage. And maybe you could wake up too. So this is this is the message of Christ, and this is He's telling you how to recover. To come to grips with your life is to come to grips with your righteousness or unrighteousness. 
So anyway, there's several more letters here that we can go through, and I'm going to go through all this in more detail and show you some of the quotes in the Bible. And anybody listening to this, you can, who's the editor on the Preparing You page, which is, has this article on recovery. If you have more quotes, we can add them to them. We'll work on these things together. But uh, until we do, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.